want to invite you to open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be looking um, at that, that entire passage, all 15 verses together this morning. There is a story about a pastor who got up one Sunday morning in front of his congregation. And he told them, I have some good news and some bad news this morning. The good news is I've been, been praying this week and thinking about it, and I, I was doing the math, and I figured out that our congregation has enough resources to eliminate entirely hunger in our local community. And the congregation, you know, was, was moved, they're enthusiastic, there was some applause that morning in the church. Until after a few moments, one of the, the persons in the pews raised their hand and they said, Pastor, that's great, but you didn't tell us the bad news yet. And he said, oh, right. Well, uh, the bad news is that most of that money I accounted for is still out there in your pockets. <laughs> Today, as we continue our study of generosity, which we began last week in 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to find out that when Titus visited Paul, while Paul was, was staying among the church in Macedonia, he came with a report about what was going on in Corinth. And, and similarly, Titus brought to Paul both good news and bad news. Two weeks ago, we heard the good news. The good news is outlined in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. The good news was that when Titus had gone to Corinth expecting tension and, and brokenness, what he found was a group of people who were moved to repentance, who were, were deeply saddened by the hurt they had caused Paul, and that they were now looking to reconcile and to restore that friendship with him. Right, the good news that Titus brings to Paul is that Corinth is eager for him to come back and visit them again. However, there was also some less good news, some bad news. And that concerned an area of unfinished business in Corinth. More, more than a year, maybe a year and a half before the writing of this letter, the Corinthians had uh, promised to partner with Paul in, in starting or initiating a special gift, a monetary collection. They knew Paul had a burning desire to help the churches in Jerusalem who were, were persecuted, who were uh, literally starving in some cases. And so they had partnered with Paul and they, they said, we're going to start collecting money. We're going to, to send this great gift, this generous gift to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. But it seems that in the ensuing year or year and a half during that spat, with Paul, right, and the brokenness that emerged and the breaking of that relationship temporarily, that the gift they promised hadn't materialized. We don't know why, whether it was out of spite toward Paul or maybe just poor planning, poor organization. The problem, the bad news, was that that money that was supposed to be going to Jerusalem was still in their pockets. They hadn't hadn't done anything about their promise. 
And so Paul is now confronted with this bad news that when he comes back to Corinth for this return visit, which, which he hopes to be an occasion of great joy and, and thanksgiving, he's afraid that these Corinthians are going to remain in that place of being unprepared to follow through on the gift they promised to give. And if that was the case, then, then Paul would either have to pressure them into to a quick and, and hasty and, and guilt-induced offering to send off to Jerusalem with him, or else he'll have to, to leave them with the, the shame of having failed to follow through on that promise. Neither of which seemed like great options. So what does Paul do when he's confronted with this bad news? Today, as we look at chapter 9, what I think we find Paul doing is Paul chooses to confront the bad news of, of their laxness or their, their failure to practice godly generosity. He confronts that with the good news of the gospel. He confronts that with the good news about the kind of grace and generosity God displays toward his people. And by reminding them of the goodness of God's generosity, I think Paul, here in chapter 9, hopes to resurrect their offering by the time he comes to visit them. So I would invite you to open to that passage, chapter 9, with me. Let me pray for us as we look at the good news together. Lord, I pray as we look into these words that they would spark within us the goodness of who you are. That you are a God who has given to us freely, and so you invite us to freely give. You're a God who multiplies the gifts we give when we trust you with them. And you are a God who is worthy of our great praise and gratitude and thanksgiving, not only for what you give, but for who you are. Lord, would the words of my mouth as I preach, would the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight? Would they abound to the praise of your glory? In your name we pray. Amen. This is 2 Corinthians. We'll start by looking at verses 1 through 7 in verse, uh, chapter 9. Paul, again, this continues what we, what we read from chapter 8 last week as he's describing the practice of generosity and this collection for the church in Jerusalem. He says, There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. The service meaning the gift they've promised to Jerusalem. For I know about your eagerness to help. In fact, I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia, the province where, where Corinth lies, you were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I am sending the brothers now in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow but that you may be ready as you said, sorry, as I said you would be. 
For if any of the Macedonians come with me and they find you are unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for this generous gift you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Anytime you have to talk about money with someone, which is what's in view here, it's wise to tread carefully. Right? It's, a, it's a sensitive matter for most of us. And Paul is being purposefully delicate here in these verses. In verse 2, he's explaining kind of explaining his own dilemma, right? He says, what you need to know is when I came here to Macedonia and I've been ministering among these persecuted and impoverished churches, I mentioned to them about this gift, this project that you had promised to partner with me in, that you guys in Corinth, you were so excited to give to the churches in Jerusalem. I told the Macedonians about this, and when they heard about your enthusiasm, it inspired them. And, and Paul's saying, you guys in Corinth, you were their inspiration, and, and now they have gone above and beyond the call of duty, right? These Macedonians, we learned in chapter 8, gave beautifully, they gave joyfully, they gave generously, even out of what they, you know, really doesn't seem like they had the resources to give, but they did so because they wanted to do so. The Macedonians were inspired by the Corinthians, but now Paul has to reckon with the fact that the Corinthians haven't actually kept their word. The Corinthians have dropped the ball, right? They had not been putting money aside to give this gift when he comes. And so now Paul is, is fearing how embarrassing it's going to be, both for him, but certainly for the Corinthians, when he shows up and they are empty-handed, they're ill-prepared. He says he'd feel ashamed, they'd feel ashamed. And I think Paul is afraid that it will create yet another strain on this friendship, which is, is being repaired, but still fragile, still delicate. So Paul is wrestling, what, what can we do? How can I address this as their, their apostle, the one who proclaimed the gospel to them in the first place? Well, Paul's solution to his dilemma is a letter. It's this letter. It's, it's 2 Corinthians, which is a book in our Bible, but was actually an epistle, right, sent to the Corinthians at this moment in time. And in verse 3, Paul says here, he's not just sending them a letter, but he's actually sending a delegation of a few brothers to deliver that letter in person. But along with the message of the letter, their job is to, to help resurrect the, the promised donation in, in the next several months before Paul comes. 
Paul is giving this project, this gift, some lead time before he shows up. But what I think is so instructive about what Paul says about generosity and about giving here in these first verses is that Paul resists the idea that generosity can be a a matter of manipulation or a matter of of shame and and guilt-inducing sort of pressure. Paul is really clear in these verses. The generosity, if if it's goodness, if, if it's coming from God, if it's resurrection kind of generosity, it must always be an expression of our freedom. Generosity has to be something we choose willingly. Look at verse 7. He says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not give reluctantly. Not give under compulsion. For what God loves is a cheerful giver. The last thing Paul says he wants is someone to give to him out of a feeling of obligation. The last thing he says God wants is for us to give to God out of a feeling of obligation or guilt. According to everything Paul says in these chapters, giving must always be an occasion for joy. And it's hard to be joyful if, you, if you're not free in that act of giving. Right? This should be good news to us. That God desires our generosity to be an act of freedom. God respects us. He wants our intentions to be good in our giving. Last, uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned a book called Boundaries that I've been reading uh, by doctors Cloud and Townsend. And in in one of the chapters, they they talk about healthy boundaries and, and sources of motivation. And they say throughout our lives, but in particular in the area of of giving, whether we're talking about giving money, whether we're talking about giving time, whether we're talking about giving approval or help to some other person, it's really important that we ask ourselves, what's the motivation behind our giving? Do we give things to other people out of the freedom of our own hearts because we want to do it? Or are we giving out of a sense of fear? And too often, I think, in my own life I've experienced this, that that we can respond to needs around us out of that place of fear. Right? Thinking, what's expected of me here? What, What does someone else think about what I should be doing? Or maybe we, we see the great need around us and, and we, we sense something is needed from me or somebody wants something from me. And if I don't give it to them, either they won't have what they need or maybe they won't be happy with me. We, we can take those things into consideration, but ultimately if we give out of the motivation of fear, If we give something we ultimately don't really desire to give someone else, or maybe we give something we don't really have to give someone else, then ultimately 
we end up in, in kind of a broken cycle. It's not the generosity that God is describing here. Maybe you've experienced this in your life in the church, right? You, you give in order to, to assuage either a feeling of disappointment or disapproval. Maybe you give your time somewhere in the church because you fear if you don't do it, nobody else will and the thing won't get done. The problem is, is not the release of our time or our gifts or our money. The problem is with our intention, with our heart. Because when we give out of a posture of fear, two things tend to happen. First, it almost always, somewhere down the line, leads to resentment. Right? We resent that we feel trapped. We have to give this gift. God expects it of us. Someone expects it of us. Uh, it, it of us. Someone needs us to, to hold it all together. Right? And over time, because we don't feel free in that act of giving, Resentment grows within us. That's the first problem with giving out of fear. The second problem is that God actually commands us not to do it. God takes no pleasure in this kind of giving. God actually says here that he would rather us keep our gifts until we desire to give them, until we're ready to give them joyfully, willingly, freely, rather than, than offer them to him in obligation, grudgingly. So let me be clear as your pastor. If you are giving to the church, if you are giving of your time, if you're giving to someone else in your life out of this place of fear, out of this place of obligation, if you're noticing that pattern of resentment in your own heart, then please stop giving in that way. I don't think God desires those gifts. I don't think the church of God depends upon them. God doesn't need our gifts. What God desires is our hearts to be in relationship with him, to be working with him and trusting him. And so that's one half of, I think, the warning that Paul is providing here about giving. But with, with that one half of the message out there. Let me give you the flip side of that. Where Paul goes from here, I think, is, is that there is also great joy and great freedom when we choose to give to God freely, willingly. Right? Not out of fear, but out of a, a recognition that God desires to do something and we can partner with him. If you sense that God has given you a gift and, and there's a place for it to be used, if someone has invited you to share that gift with them in a particular way, and God is growing that desire in you to do that, even if it's costly, even if it's sacrificial, even if it, it's exhausting at some moments in time to give, if you're doing it freely and joyfully, then, then go for it. Please be obedient in that giving. Because this is how the kingdom operates. This is how the kingdom releases blessing. When we generously, joyfully, and freely partner with God in our giving. And I want you to look at verses 8 through 11. And see what God does as, as we enter freely into that practice with him. 
verse 8. Paul says, when you give freely, when you give joyfully, when you give cheerfully, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. All, 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 every. That's a a universal promise. As it is written, and here he's quoting from Psalm 112. They who have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. There's that all in every language again. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul, I think, is expanding now upon the good news of how God has designed generosity. Right? We've said that God has designed generosity to be about joy and freedom and, and free participation. But secondly, he says that when we partner freely with God, God adds to that partnership something miraculous. God adds his own power and blessing to our choice to be generous. And he does so by sustaining and by even multiplying the act of our giving. Now let me briefly just give you a disclaimer. What I'm not proclaiming here is a kind of prosperity gospel. Right? This, this is not Paul saying drop $100 in the offering plate and it comes back to you as a bigger house or a better car or more stuff to fill up your life. Right? If, if you hear someone preaching that gospel, I don't think that's what the scriptures are communicating here. There, there is a prosperity and an abundance about our giving to God and partnering with God in our giving. But I would, I would describe the, the miracle that takes place as more akin to what every gardener, what every farmer witnesses between the time of sowing their crop into the ground and the time of harvest that comes a few months later. Right? If you've done that, if you've watched that, if you've witnessed that, you know there is this amazing, miraculous release of, of organic growth and power and multiplication. And I think that's what Paul is describing here when he talks about generosity. Last week, I, I mentioned harvesting lettuce from our garden. Right? Almost all of us, I'm sure, have bought lettuce at the grocery store. I don't know if you've ever planted lettuce, but if you haven't, the, the seeds are, are teeny tiny. You know, when you dump them out of the packet, you hardly know you're holding anything in your hand. But yet, when you, you put them in the ground, you leave them there for five or six weeks, suddenly you have these big, bushy heads of lettuce that you harvest and they fill up an entire salad bowl for dinner. Right? In, in doing so, you witness God's miracle of multiplication right? on a, an organic level. Paul says here that the same kind of power is at work 
in the way God has created and designed generosity with what he's given to us in every part of life. And in Paul's analogy, right, he's, he's using this analogy of sowing seed and harvesting what comes from it. He says when we take what God has given us in God's goodness, in God's love for us, and we offer it back to another brother or sister, that action of, of releasing the gift is like sowing seed in fertile soil. Paul says God doesn't just watch what we do. The seeds don't just stay in the ground. We don't just you know, have what we have given to the other person. It doesn't stay that way. He said God joins us in that decision by adding his multiplying power to that gift so that the seeds we sow don't just stay seeds. They grow to become a harvest. They're touched by the abundance of God to make things flourish and multiply. And so when we give generously, when we give freely, Paul says one of the benefits is that God increases and blesses that gift to meet the needs around us, right? To meet the needs of our, our neighbor, our family, our community. But incredibly, there's, there's also more to this promise of blessing. If you look in verses 10 and 11, Paul is pretty clear that we're told that as we sow away the blessings we've been given, we serve the kind of God who delights in sending more seed our way. Right? We sow it into the ground, it reaps a harvest, God supplies us with more seed. We sow it into the ground, it reaps a harvest, God supplies us with more seed. Verse 11, he says that, that God intentionally enriches us through the practice of generosity so that we can keep being generous on future occasions. Right? It's, it's a habit, it's a, it's a virtue, it's a discipline, and the more we do it, the more God puts into our lives the power to release blessing, the power to be generous. It's a cycle. And I think this is a really unique kind of countercultural way to view money and resource. There are many economists out there who would talk about the economy as, as a limited set of, of capital, right? We're competing for, for control of these limited means. So if, if you get too much, I don't have enough. And if, if I don't have enough, I need to get some from you. We believe in a God who spoke the world into existence, who is the world's creator, and who is the giver of every good gift. And we believe in a God who desires the flourishing both of us and our neighbors. And so in the kingdom of heaven, it's not a competitive economy. It's not even an economy of, of limited amounts of, of capital. It's an economy where when we sow what we've been given into another person, we are not diminished, but rather we're built up. When we sow into another, God sows back into us. God creates an abundance. God creates a harvest out of what we entrust to him. And as we entrust that God really does this, as we see him meeting need, as we see him taking care of us, even as we give sacrificially, Paul says there's one final 
and maybe most important gift that's released in the process. He says the good news about God's design for generosity is that ultimately it leads us to worship. It leads us to praise and thanksgiving and gratitude for who God is and how he works. Look at the last four verses of this chapter. He says, the service you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And they will praise God for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Right? What he's saying there is that when we're generous, other people praise God for our act of generosity. Verse 14, And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace, the surpassing gift that God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So Paul says not only does generosity meet the needs of the world around us. Can we move forward? Oh, backward one. Not only does, does generosity release blessing, right, to meet the needs around us, not only does it teach us the, the power God has to provide for us and to keep multiplying and sustaining us in our giving, but Paul says that as generosity works its way into us and through us, it releases God's very best gift, which is worship and gratitude and praise. Right? Generosity leads us to, to this overwhelming conclusion that God is good and that he cares about his creation. And the only thing we can do in light of that is, is to extol him, is to, to burst out in, in thanksgiving. The practice of generosity ultimately and always leads back to worship. I really liked how uh, one of the commentators on 2 Corinthians, Murray Harris, put it in his commentary. He says that as we look at these chapters on generosity, what we see described is a grace circle. That the practice of generosity pulls us into this circle of grace. And if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul says that, that I want to tell you about the grace, the gift that God has given the Macedonians, right? Anytime, anything we have begins as God's grace and gift to us, right? It comes to God into us as his people. But then we can choose what to do with that gift of grace, right? And one of the things we can do with the gifts God's given us is release it to another person, right? We give gifts of grace to one another because God's given them to us. When we do this, though, what Paul's saying here at the end of chapter 9 is that that completes the cycle because when we bless another brother or sister, it provokes them to thank God, to praise him for the gifts he's given. Right? And so what started with God's grace to us comes through us and then back to God in praise and adoration and worship. In fact, the word for thanksgiving in Greek is the word uh, Eucharist, right? To, uh, it, it has that word for grace in the middle, and it's, it's literally 
the, the good gift God has sown into us, and then we express back to God. Right? It's our good gift that we return in praise and thanksgiving. There's a sense in which every week as your pastor, I, I experience this grace circle in the moment of our giving of gifts and tithes and offerings. Right? Because we, we are in that moment expressing an act of trust by giving the gifts God has given to us, putting them in the offering plate. And we sing in the, the doxology, right, that these are the gifts from God from whom all blessings flow. Right? We recognize they came from God to us. You're giving them back into his care. And you're actually giving them to the blessing in part of our own family. Right? I recognize every week as I hold those gifts in my hands that you are caring for the needs of my family. You're feeding and clothing and housing and caring for my family in that action. And in that moment of, of offering those gifts, then I'm also inspired to thank God both for, for giving you those gifts in the first place, but also for your desire to be generous with them and trusting them into his care and blessing our family in the process. Paul describes this cycle in verse 13. He says, when, when the service you offer, when the gifts you offer lead others to praise God, in the same moment their hearts, verse 14, will go out to you in a, in a desire to bless you and pray for you and care for you as your brothers and sisters. And it's like Paul's describing this exchange of grace going back and forth between God and his people. Which leads us more and more deeply, not only into the practice of generosity, but into a, a lived understanding of who God is, of what he's like. Paul concludes in verse 15. He says, thanks be to our God for his indescribable gift. And what I think he has in view here is the gift of Jesus Christ, the Son who he said back in chapter 8, right, was the one who for our sake, even though he was rich and, and possessed the riches of glory and grace and all of the powers of heaven, right, Jesus chose to become poor for our sake. Jesus chose to enter into a human body and through his life and through his death and through his resurrection to join us to himself so that we might receive the riches of his grace. So that we might feast on all that he enjoys in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. And that's what the table which is set before us is all about. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let me invite those who are serving to come forward now and let us be prepared to feast on the generosity of God but also to offer our worship and adoration.